the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Folks, thanks for joining us for today's show. I think it's going to wrap your week up with a bang, which is great because we're coming up on a New Year's Eve, some fireworks. Let's throw some fireworks downrange for you right now. I have Steve Baker. He's been recently hired as a full-time contributor to the Blaze Media, but he started off as a trumpet player who wanted nothing more than to tour the world and entertain people with music. Sometimes God has different plans. I've been finding out that he draws straight with crooked lines. And Steve Baker, his story is very representative of that. What you're going to see is a comprehensive narrative that we've walked through for this week. We saw Matt Taibbi talking about how peeling back the layers of the Twitter files let us see the machinations of government's heavy hand and censorship and what it might mean and some of the small consequences when they went after him. We saw some whistleblowers telling you they lost jobs. We saw Tracy Beans telling you that the government wants to control your thoughts. Today, we're talking to Steve Baker, who is actually facing prosecution from the FBI for simply trying to tell the truth about a day that has mostly been lied about. Stay tuned. I'm Kyle Serafin in for Dinesh D'Souza, and this is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. America needs this voice. The times are crazy in a time of confusion, division, and lies. We need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. And I've got maybe my most popular guest on my own personal podcast. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. This is a man named Steve Baker. He has been working recently as a contributor and now a full-time correspondent for The Blaze, which is a testimony to their fortitude, but not someone who started off to be a journalist and I think is sort of sets a great example for what can happen in the way that sort of God moves us in our lives. Steve Baker, thanks so much for joining me from the undisclosed location on the Carolina coast. That's right. Hey, Kyle. Good morning. Good to hear from you. I I feel like we should be doing a weather stand up. It looks too nice to be in a hurricane, but maybe you could tell us like what what's it looking like out there, Steve? <laughs> well, it's about uh, forty five degrees and sunny. Uh, the surf is up. Uh, I would have rather had the ocean behind me right now, but it's too loud. So we're going to do it on the uh, the road side of the building here that I stopped at. Fantastic. And and you're not on the run, although you could be. We're going to get into that. The FBI obviously has made some calls to you. Folks, if you have not heard the story, you're going to want to listen to all of it. Um, I want to go back to the beginning, if we can. You were a young man in, in the uh, Cold War era, and you had no intention of being an independent journalist standing on the side of the road in Cal- uh, in Carolina talking to me. Can you kind of run us through the, uh, the quick and dirty version of your life, if you would? Yeah, the simple version was the only thing I ever wanted to be in life was a trumpet player from the time I was a kid. And then 19 years old, I got a call from a band that was touring uh, worldwide. I quit college to go on the road, uh, as every young musician would want to do. So I chose the road over school. And two weeks later, I found myself, surprisingly, in a recording studio in San Francisco, recording to what would have uh, the demo to what would eventually become the theme song to the 1980 Summer Moscow Olympics, which was 
uh, a big shock for me. Can you imagine an American band recording the theme song for the 1980 Moscow Olympics hosted by the Soviet Union? And uh, it's so that's a whole long story in itself. But the bottom line is, is that after the travel restrictions were lifted because President Carter boycotted the 1980 summer games because they had ironically just invaded Afghanistan. And so, yeah, let, let that one wash over you. I, uh, yeah, Americans need such a good sense of history, history if we want to know the irony of the times we're living in right now. But that's a great, great little uh, snap of it. Yeah. yeah, historical humor and so dark humor. And so what ended up happening was uh, a year later, the band was invited to do uh, a tour in the Soviet Union. And we played over there. We toured. I played on Soviet Central Television in July of 1981. And then I, uh, I I don't know how deep into that story you want to go, Kyle, because you know a little bit more of it already. But the bottom line is, is that we were doing actual dissident work, working with underground Soviet dissidents, uh, particularly Christian dissidents and musicians, and supplying them with recording equipment, tape duplicating machines, printing press parts and plates. Uh, of course, we don't need printing presses anymore. But uh, in, in the, the days of electronics and email, but the bottom line is back then, this was very important for them to do their work and to spread the words of liberty and freedom and 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 the work that they were doing un, under underground to try to bring down the you know the Soviet Empire from within. So we were actively supporting that, and then I did uh, my own trips over there by myself as well. After that, and that was kind of the era of cutting my teeth and doing. Uh, you know, rather, let's say, you know, surreptitious work and behind the scenes types of, uh, 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 activity. But fast forward, I continued in my music career, various elements of the music business. And then, uh, I started writing, uh, because writing has always been a passion. I wrote for, for some music magazines back in the eighties. And then in the early nineties, I began to kind of exercise my political analysis and muscle with the advent of the internet and AOL and CompuServe and all of that became MySpace. And I set up my first blog in the MySpace world. And of course, we all know where that went. And then MySpace became... Tom is still your friend, though, correct? Tom is still your buddy. Tom, I, I, I actually follow him on Facebook. That's and, very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's another one of those little zingers. But the bottom line is, is that Facebook became a blog. And then one day COVID came to town and they told me I couldn't make a living playing music anymore for the next year and a half. So I just very simply made the decision to move my journalism over to what I call the captain's chair of my life. And I moved my music to the co-pilot seat, just kind of switched, switched gears. And, and what had been my side hustle became my primary function. Fast forward another year, January 6th happened. And guess who was there? Because at that point, now I'm chasing stories, not yeah. knowing what that story would be. I went to the Capitol. And follow that story where that story went that day. And that brings us to my current uh, situation. Yeah. So I think it's worth noting that you come by your sort of subversive nature against government uh, narratives in a very honest way. And it started at a young age that you went in behind what we would all call kind of a tyrannical government of the Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain. It wasn't called that for no reason. You went back and you did some really neat work where you were working to help people who wanted freedom. And I think you're still doing that in a lot of ways. Musicians tend to be a sort of liberty-minded group and m- maybe more liberal-minded, but it doesn't mean that they don't uh, think that the First Amendment is not important right. in the expression. That may have changed dramatically in the last couple of years. I think you probably had that experience, but fun to note that you go all the way back there. And then because you and I know each other, I'm going to add just a little piece of it. You also come by the investigative nature, I think, quite honestly, 
because your dad had a background doing that, did private investigations. And so as you come into this, you're at January 6th. People have made the arguments like, well, how do you know they were journalists? It's because they don't have to prove it. There's no there's no definition or test of journalism on the Constitution that I've read, unless you've read something different. No, when the uh, when the Federal Bureau of Investigation called me in my interview back in October 21, one of the first things they asked me is if I had any type of credentials. And I said, yes, the First Amendment. And is there any other requirement by law, federal or otherwise? Is there a license for journalism? Of course not. No, although they would love to see that because then they could definitely put their hand on it. When we see that sort of piece of a regulation, it also means control. All right, so you went to January 6th. You have a, a nuanced take on January 6th that maybe people don't disagree with. I don't think you, we are very different in our take on it. Will you tell people in a broad scope what you saw happen on that day? Yeah, it was no more complicated than this, is what, that when I arrived at the Capitol from the rally over at the Ellipse, uh, the first thing that I saw and heard were sirens of Metropolitan Police arriving. I saw um, smoke up at the Capitol, which I had interpreted to probably be tear gas of some sort. And then I heard flashbangs. I was with a colleague of mine, another writer. Uh, I looked at him and said, well, I guess that's where we're going. And we broke out in a sprint, headed up to the West Terrace, where there was already a battle line established between Capitol Police, the arriving Metro Police, and then the more agitated, I would call them, of the protesters in the line. And I turned on my camera. And then from that point forward, I just tried my best to capture the scenes that were unveiling in front, uh, unfolding in front of me, and then trying to stay safe as well. Uh, I won't get into the details of the day. Everybody's seen the videos, but when I got back home and began to analyze my videos that I had captured from the outside, from the inside, it be- then the story began to develop when I was doing frame-by-frame analysis of my own video. I began to see the provocateurs. I began to see also the fear in the Capitol Police eyes, these young, unprotected police officers, untrained, unprepared, uh, no no protective gear on whatsoever. And they were thrust into this situation where they were obviously caught off guard. They were obviously surprised. They were obviously frightened. And you can imagine looking over my shoulder at what they saw coming. Can you imagine that being, you know, a young kid that was basically a glorified tour guide for maybe two or three or five years, whatever his tour of duty had been with the Capitol Police at that time. And all of a sudden he sees thousands, tens of thousands of people descending upon the Capitol and the first line are already fighting him, already hitting with sticks and flagpoles and throwing, you know, water balls at the bottle that hitting them with, with bear strike. They had no idea what was coming. And so this wasn't this wasn't the kind of thing that I processed in my own mind of the site. As I said, I was trying to capture the event, trying to stay safe myself. And then it was upon that uh, follow-up analysis of my video that the story actually began to develop. And what I have, I, I've pretty much stuck to this theme since the very beginning, although I've changed my mind, I've changed my analysis on certain incidences and certain characters and individuals involved with the day. Uh, big story just developing with John Sullivan, the guy who captured the uh, film of uh, Ashley Babbitt being shot. You would think that that story has long been done and long been told, but I interviewed his parents yesterday, and there's more to it yet to come. We'll talk about that maybe if you want to in a minute. But the, the bottom line is is that the, the, um, the thing that I saw and I've been most consistent with and not buried in my perspective and in my analysis is that I seem to be looking at an event that was maybe not necessarily planned, but it was set up just in case it could be allowed to happen. If that 
is, and I, I, you know, you, you call it a nuanced approach. That's actually just how I see it. Um, there was obvious what they call intel failures, but were they failures due to incompetence, due to bureaucratic government incompetence of the largest bureaucracy in the world, the police force of, you know, the most incom- incompetent government in the world? Um, could be, but it, it came in so many different places and so often, and there were so many layers of this failure that one cannot help but begin to go and start looking at potential that this was a purposeful withholding of intel and and a um, suppression of intel and because we know that the intel was not given to the lower level uh, frontline officers it was not given to the, the lower level commanders and that we also know that the intel was hidden from the capitol police chief son himself and so that's all corroborated confirmed by testimony even in nancy pelosi's select committee so this is this is not controversial uh, information. So when you put all of these pieces of the puzzle together, and then the you know three years now almost of subsequent investigative work that I've done, uh, it begins to take take shape and show us that this was this was something that was not only allowed to happen, but um, it certainly, as I've often said, Kyle, it's the largest narrative victory by the left probably in our nation's history. The the, the aftermath and net result of what took place that day. It's it's really wild to look at it from the outside and the number of people that were captured with that narrative. You talk about a narrative victory. I saw people that were senior executives of the FBI. Obviously, like I, I worked at the FBI for years and, and some of the people that were my bosses ended up being the top bosses there. Some of them have even left and retired since that time. And they said multiple Capitol Police officers were killed on that day. You know, the following things that we know did not happen. Yeah. They still right. claim it. They still believe it in the same way that some people still believe that 50% of the people that get COVID die from it. Uh, you know, there's some very illogical things that were initially messaged and they've been held out. And even though that public scrutiny has destroyed them, they've, they've stayed rooted in a certain number of brains. Let me let me run this idea by you. My buddy George Hill was a lifetime in the intelligence community, both military and civilian service. And what he says is that you don't always build your operations based on I plan this and when A happens, B happens and C happens and so on like dominoes. What you do is you create a series of potential mm-hmm. paths. Kind of like the choose your own adventure books when I was a kid, where if this happens, then this decision tree happens. And if this happens, we take advantage of this opportunity. And January 6th to me from the outside, and a lot of what you've told me has has lined up with this. It seems like this. If certain people show up and get rowdy, then we open up these doors and take this decision tree and we allow certain things to happen. And if some of these other people show up, we can do these. And a number of those people showed up. A number of those things happens. So they got to actually run a number of maybe of ops and they being different members of different agencies and so on and different interest groups were allowed to certain things to happen, as you said, and funnel them in a direction that was advantageous to this massive political narrative that has been put out. Is that, does that sit well with you? That that's a great way of describing it. I, you know, you you can, I I like, I like the, the way you said the decision tree and and because that is, it, it was, if, if in fact they choose door number three, then, will allow that to develop in a certain way. And and what happened that day, and this is, this is I'm getting maybe a little bit darker here, but it's not conspiratorial because, again, it, 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 there's too much evidence now towards this taking place. But one of the things that I believe that whoever the powers that be that kind of semi-anticipated that this could maybe might happen, I mean, look, Kyle, we're talking about the 
Secretary of Defense, the acting Secretary of Defense at the time, Chris Miller, and the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Commander Milley, they both wanted to cancel all of the January 6th, what they called First Amendment permits that day. They actually notified the White House. They notified Congress. They notified the Capitol Police Intel. They wanted to cancel all of their permits. The Park Police, there was something. uh, The Capitol Police had issued six permits that day on the Capitol route. Now, people don't understand that this was not a a spontaneous march at the direction of President Trump to storm the Capitol. No, they're in advance, weeks in advance. There had been six applications approved, legally permitted, signed off on by the Capitol Police leadership themselves, including the signature on every one of those permits was the assistant chief, Yogananda Pittman, the head of Capitol Police Intel. Why does the Capitol Police Intel sign the, the permits? Because they have to look at those groups and determine what their risk level is. All of them were assessed as low or completely not going to happen. Nothing. Yeah, to innocuous. Right, no right. Risk. We have nothing to fear here. All right, size off all six of those permits. And then what happened was, is that as this crowd approached, I believe that with the intel they had, they thought these MAGA yokels and yahoos and rednecks all over the country we're going to show up with their ARs, show up with concealed weapons under their winter clothing because it was a cold uh, Wednesday in January. And that as a result of that, that they were going to pull those weapons. And my biggest, darkest fear about the day is that they wanted to capture a narrative that would have eliminated for all time our Second, Second Amendment rights. Because I, I think that they actually wanted that to happen. And the second story I ever wrote about January 6th, uh, which came out uh, six weeks after the event, I actually said that I believed that they were willing to sacrifice a couple of Capitol Police officers on the altar of that narrative in order to take our Second Amendment away from us. And thank God, none of those yahoos, (laughs) MAGA yokels or whatever, drew their weapons. There was only one shot fired that day, and that was my uh, Capitol Police officer, Lieutenant Michael Byrd. That's a good taste. We're going to take a little break right now. We're going to come back. Lest anyone think that Steve Baker does not know what he's talking about, I'm going to give you guys one. We're going to talk about his credentials in this, the amount of time that he spent covering it, which is absolutely, uh, I think it's overwhelming. And then we're going to talk about what that's landed him because the results of covering this kind of story also tells us another story about who was offended and why. And uh, we'll get into that right after the break. All right, folks, today is the fifth day of Christmas. It's five gold rings. Christmas in the rear view. You've got New Year's coming in front of you. How about starting off the new year free from pain? Wouldn't that be the right way to go? Think about trying Relief Factor. You know what? A number of my good friends, Seb Gorka and Dinesh D'Souza, think it's the right answer. It might be worth trying it out, especially if you are someone who suffers from chronic body pains. It's a daily supplement that helps your body fight back against pain without using drugs. Seems like a smart idea. Relief Factor was developed by doctors who were searching for an alternative to pharmaceutical pain medication. It uses a unique formula of natural ingredients like turmeric and omega-3. It helps reduce and eliminate body pains by going after the source of that pain, and that is inflammation. So whether it's neck pain, back pain, joint pain, muscle pains, all the pains, 
Check out Relief Factor and see if it can make you feel better. Unlike pills that simply mask it for a short period of time, Relief Factor is trying to support your body's natural defense against it by attacking inflammation. So you feel better every day, all day long. Just see how it can help you with their three-week quick start kit. It's less than $20 at nineteen ninety-five. It comes with Relief Factor's Feel Better or Your Money Back Guarantee. You got to love something like that. Why not try it? No risk at all relieffactor.com again relieffactor.com or you can call their 800 number at 800 for relief that's 800 the number four relief when you feel the difference you'll know it's working relief factor all right folks we are back with steve baker he's doing his man on the street impression standing on the streets of a small coastal town in carolina no further information given no further information required uh, we're talking about January 6th, the narrative victory that was made by the political left. And more importantly, I want to dig into when this man makes a proclamation or says, this is my analysis and this is why. Let's get into some of the credentials of how much time you've spent and some of the things that you've been able to see that I would say almost everybody in America has no visibility to. Uh, first of all, the the video you captured, most people have seen or a lot of people have seen your videos and they didn't know you took them. What was that video that kind of got you on the map uh, for all? For all $1,500 or so that you earned on it. Can you tell people what that was? Yeah, the, the most significant video that I captured that day was the actual extraction of Ashley Babbitt's body out of the south exit of the Capitol. Uh, after she was shot in that speaker's lobby hallway or the little small staircase, we've all seen that video. Uh, the most important video of the day probably was the one captured by John Sullivan, otherwise known as Jaden X, where he actually saw the gun and then saw, you know, uh, actually being hit, falling out of the window to the floor. And so after that scene and that chaotic event took place, they, um, uh, some of the, uh, I, I don't want to call them a SWAT team because that's not what they were. More, I think they were more search officers. They carried her down the steps to the lower level of the Capitol and towards the south exit. Nobody's ever seen that video, but we're going to show that soon. We have I've seen it on Capitol CCTV. We're going to show them bringing her down to that area. And then from that point forward, she was turned over to uh, FBI medics who were frantically trying to save her life. And I walked up on that event. I did not have my camera on at the moment. I did not. In fact, I'm kind of glad I did. But I was the only civilian there. I was the only person. So this was not a crisis actor thing. There were no cameras there to capture this for um, you know, for the conspiracy theorists to hang their hats on. This was a real event in real time that I saw. And in fact, it was so aggressively, um, uh, I mean, well, it was, it was a shocking event to see that the Capitol police officer that was escorting me out of the building at the time, I looked over at her and I said, is he shot? And she said, yes, he is. Cause all I could see was jeans and boots and a bloody chest with hands doing compressions. I couldn't see the bare breasts. I didn't know it was a woman. I couldn't see her, her head or her hair at the time. And so I said, is he shot? She said, yes, he is. I said, who shot him? She said, we did. I said, why did you shoot him? She said, uh, he pulled a gun on it. Well, I mean, she didn't know. She wasn't there. Sure. The, 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 the chaos on the Capitol Police radio at the time was intense. Nobody, yeah, that's all, so, you know, that's all normal fog of war. Yeah. And so. As we were leaving out of the south entrance, the um, local fire department EMS unit was coming in with the gurney. And so obviously what comes in must come out. So I went and posted up outside that door, turned my camera on and waited. And 60 seconds later, they're hauling Ashley out. And they're still, now they've turned it over to the to the EMTs. They're furiously working on her. 
followed her down the ramp. And then as I'm following her down the ramp, you can hear me on my own video go, holy shit, woman. Because at that point now I can see her bare breasts. I could see her face, her, uh, her blank eyes. She was gone. She was already gone. Her, her head was turned over my direction. I captured a cl- close up of that, uh, which will be, you know, in my mind for the rest of, of my life. But I knew that she was gone. I've seen death before. I immediately, uh, my colleague that I had went to the Capitol with immediately texted him and said, shots fired, lady's been hit. She's not going to make it. And I have that, I have that text recorded. So, um, that's, that's the primary video that was used in HBO documentary, New York Times documentary, and so many others, as well as, uh, several other of my video clips have been used by news agencies around the world. Now that's led you to getting access. You worked with a number of different groups, but you were able to get access to the, the so-called, was it 40,000 hours or so of footage. Yep. You've spent time in the control room at the panels, at the consoles of the U S Capitol police. And when I talked to you before you went in there, you said, I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly what timestamps I want to look at. You've been slowly exposing this and the blaze has been kind of publishing it. I think you got a lot more to go. Give people an idea of how much time you've sat at those consoles and how much of this video you've reviewed. Yeah, I'm not going to say this authoritatively because I don't know. And I'm sure the the uh, committee that's in charge of all that video would tell me anyway. But the point being is that I, I, I would, I'd say 99% sure that I've had more access to those consoles than any independent or news media journalist has had. My first access has been when, when I was independent, and then I've had several other opportunities to go into the viewing room there at the Capitol uh, with my Blaze team now that they're they're going in with me, and I'm able to show them and have a couple of other of our analysts on the various consoles working, and so I'm almost acting as a producer and director now saying, okay, look here, look here, look here. And then uh, I'll be back in there again next week, as a matter of fact. And, and what is your overall impression of the scripted narrative that we saw for the first maybe two years? And then what you guys have been slowly unveiling over the last maybe six months or so? Uh, how much at odds are they? Well, they are quite at odds. And they have been since the very beginning, but we had to prove it. And so now, because of the access to the video in particular, we're able to start the process of chipping away. And one of the things that I've been able to accomplish, as I said, or you pointed out a moment ago, is that I knew exactly where to go because I'd been following the trials. I'd been listening to testimonies of Capitol Police officers. I had, I had seen the inconsistencies in the trial transcripts. And I went, okay, that's not exactly, I don't think that's exactly the truth. And so I was able to go in and look at the video. And this was video, Kyle, that was not to the defense attorneys or to the defendants and what they call their discovery process for the building the defenses in their case for the setup for the, the, the frame-ups for the accusations that the government was falsely making against these individuals and they were corroborating their false assertions and these false charges against individuals by bringing in officers, federal officers to be on the stand in front of a sympathetic D.C. jury and tell tall tales in order to frame these um, innocent men and women up. And so I was and, able and to And you're using the in. word frame and you're using the word yes. false statements. Those are very specifically, I know you choose them carefully. When you're a federal officer or a federal agent like I was, when you lie on the stand, if you ever lie on the stand, you are supposed to be barred from testimony for life. It's called Giglio material. It will always be disclosed in front saying, hey, this person is known to have lied. And that pretty much ends your career in federal law enforcement. These people mostly have not lost their career over this stuff. 
Well, not only, Kyle, this is, this is the most reprehensible part, and this is where we get into deeper cover and deeper evidence of collusion with higher-ranking individuals in these various agencies is the fact that some of these officers should never have been allowed to testify in the first place because they themselves had already lied to the department with which they worked in years past and other disciplinary actions. And so they should have been on that list meant that information should have been provided to the defense teams as Brady material, uh, full disclosure from the Department of Justice, from the FBI, in order for these uh, defendants to build their case and then to either uh, block those testimonies or to at least be able to you know, impeach them on the stand under cross-examination. But none of this information was provided to the defense teams. And because of our access to this video, we've been able to find the actual proof that these officers did not do what they claimed they did. They did not see what they claimed they saw, and they couldn't have because they weren't where they claimed that they were by the evidence of the video and very specific, accurate timestamps. We're talking to Steve Baker. He's doing a man-on-the-street impression out there. Uh, you can see the weather behind him. We're talking now because of the way that his life has developed uh, so interestingly from a 19-year-old who just wanted to play a trumpet. So if you're just joining and you're seeing this for now for the first time, that's what we're doing here. Um, what I want to kind of do is, and I also want to tease this, I've talked to Steve for many hours, I don't know, probably close to 10 hours on camera at this point. And if you guys can go back and see it on my podcast, it's rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Go look for Steve. He goes by... Uh, the pragmatic constitutionalist, formerly the pragmatic libertarian, he's a very fair-minded person. I think you guys are hearing a sane and sober take on all of this stuff. I want to tease out, first of all, you can find him, uh, all these stories and more, both at The Blaze, and you can find him at TPC, the number four USA, TPC or USA. Um, Steve, let's do two just tastes of it, if you would. I'd like to talk about David Lazarus and Harry Dunn and why those stories are so relevant to debunking the narrative. And let's, I'll just let you take it away. I know you're the expert on this. <laughs> yeah. The, the Harry Dunn story begins with his encounter with what everybody knows as the Oath Keepers inside the Capitol building that day. The Oath Keepers were declared by the Department of Justice. I have it on uh, not only the transcripts, but I was sitting there in the courtroom when the lead prosecuting attorney for the DOJ said, these were the leaders of the insurrection. I mean, he pointed at those Oath Keepers that were sitting in that room and sitting there on trial in front of that jury and said they were the leaders of the insurrection, which was instantly a red flag for me because the Oath Keepers weren't even on the property yet when the Capitol was being breached. They were actually at the ellipse at the invitation of the Secret Service they were Their medics were helping the Metropolitan Police with injured people in the crowd down at the rally. They were sitting there in there with what we call their protectees because of those six licensed vets at the uh, Capitol. They were leading their VIP speakers over and protecting them from the, you know, the crowds until they got them to the staging where they had the microphones and the PA and were not only um, individuals that were Trump supporters, but also members of Congress were scheduled to speak to them. Uh, that day of course all i got blown away by the melee that ensued but that's sure stories so uh, so the 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 these so-called leaders of the insurrection were not even on the property with the actual leaders whoever they were the the leading edge of the provocateurs were breaching barricades breaching doors breaching windows that's the truth that's the reality by the timeline 
So what ended up happening is a group of Oath Keepers did end up going in the East Doors when they were opened, not by them, reached by others, and they went inside. And then one of those Oath Keepers by the name of Kenny Harrelson from Florida, he saw a very agitated officer arrive at the top of the stairs, just off to, off to the side of the main rotunda, and he was carrying an M4 rifle. He looked like he was ready to snap, and then there was some agitated protesters that were ready to help, you know, Helping snap. Let's just, you know, say and, that. And this person at the stairs, this is Harry Dunn, who is not a uh, person that you could mistake on any camera footage. You said he's what, six, no. six, nine, seven, six, seven, 350 pounds, and uh, very, uh, let's just say he has a very um, particular and unique gait about him. So he was easy to track through the. Yeah, re- a really big guy. And anytime, if you've seen any of the footage, folks, you'll notice like this guy is not, he's not mistakable for anybody else on the grounds at that time. All right, so he's agitated. He's got an M4. There's people that yeah. are willing to push him, and it looks like. And so what do the Oath Keepers get involved in? So so Kenny got three of the other Oath Keepers. They formed a line between him and those more agitated protesters. And you can actually see from video footage and stills shots from that video, you can see Kenny holding his hands out and holding protesters back and keeping them from approaching Harry Dunn. They, were de- they themselves recognized the dangerous, highly volatile situation and took it upon themselves, it's former law enforcement, former military themselves, and started the process of, of creating a safety net in that situation. And they actually, you know, they left Kyle. They were driving home to Florida the next day. They all thought that they were going to get some sort of Medal of Honor. They thought they literally, they literally thought that right. they were going, they were like, well, do you realize what we did? Because they knew what they had accomplished that day. But, of course, that's not what happened. The exact yeah, in the 1980s, we would have given those people keys to the city. That's what that would have been. Yeah. It would have been a big wooden key and said, thank you for your service, and you and you averted exactly the crisis. Right. That's exactly right. But what ended up happening is is that now it's time to frame these guys as the quote-unquote leaders of the insurrection. So the government brings in Harry Dunn to his first FBI testimony, except that his first FBI um, uh, interview, rather, was uh, on a form you're familiar with, I think called the 302. And on that form, he actually, in the first interview, he gave a positive accounting. He actually corroborated what the Oath Keepers had said, that they'd formed a line between him and the more agitated protesters. Well, that wasn't going to stand because once the Star Chamber was assembled to frame these guys, they had to bring Harry back in for another interview in which he flipped his testimony. He turned that into a completely highly confrontational situation where the Oath Keepers themselves were trying to get down the stairs and attack other officers that were injured downstairs. And he, being the big guy he was, was not going to allow it. He stopped them cold. And what okay. did the video show? Uh, well, the video shows the Oath Keepers lined up in front of him, protecting him from the agitated officers. That's what the video showed. Now, so we have a shaky testimony from Officer Harry Dunn. And so what the government needed to do now was to find that more higher-ranking officer with a little bit more cut time, a little bit more credibility. Let's say, how about uh, the head of Nancy Pelosi's security detail, special agent David Lazarus? Let's bring him in and let's have him say that he witnessed that confrontational encounter with Harry Dunn and the Oath Keepers three or four times as he was himself heroically rescuing Pelosi's staffers um, from uh, in the middle of the protest while all of those protesters were there causing wreaking havoc and damage and all of that. Well, the problem with David Lazarus's testimony is, is this, is his testimony was not corroborated 
by the other 1,100 cameras worth of data that had never been given to the defense team. Let that sink in, America. This was information withheld from the defense teams by the government, by the Capitol Police, by, and believe me, there are two other agencies that, uh, entities that had this video, and you know who I'm talking about, the Department of Justice and the FBI had sure. all 1,700 cameras worth of video. They only gave the um, uh, defendants 650 cameras worth of video. But I knew from the testimony that I saw in the trial and the red flags that were you know, going off uh, when I saw this testimony that there was something wrong with these officers' testimony, and I knew exactly where to go look. And so we backtracked from that scene and episode from the time that Lazarus arrived, some six minutes after the Oath Keepers had cleared that area, some three minutes after they were out of the Capitol, and we followed Lazarus all the way down, back under the tunnels, across the street, across Constitution Avenue, into the uh, Senate office buildings where he was actually escorting the uh, evacuation of senators over there. The bottom line, Kyle, is is he couldn't have been a witness to that, not one time, certainly not three or four times, because he was in another building in another part of the Capitol complex when that encounter between Harry Dunn and the Oath Keepers took place. He was brought in specifically to lie, to prop up, and they never believed those sensitive, highly sensitive security cameras down in the tunnels would be seen by a guy that only wanted to be a trumpet clerk. Unbelievable. Um, that's going to be a good place to take a quick break. I want to come and wrap up. I want to just talk about the personal cost in a short form here. So, folks, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with Steve Baker. Today's show is also brought to you by Balance of Nature. I don't know why I like the way that sounds in my head, but it makes me want to sing it kind of like a balance of nature. And Balance of Nature is one of the products you can choose to solve the age-old problem, I don't want to eat my vegetables. My kids are in that world right now. You serve them asparagus, they're saying no thanks. You serve them broccoli, they don't want that either. You try to give them broccolini, they're like, what is this? Is this broccoli with a birth defect? No! You can try Balance of Nature. You can struggle to eat fruits and vegetables, or you can take one daily supplement and solve the problem right outright with enough fruits, vegetables, and fiber for your daily needs. Balance of Nature. Guys, there's a proprietary brand there. They take the produce, they powder it after an advanced vacuum-sealed cold process. It stabilizes the maximum nutritional content, and that means you're just taking it down on the pill. You don't have to taste it. Hmm, maybe I should be getting this for my kids. A proprietary blend of fiber and spices, up to 12 spices and fiber to make sure that you have overall health and also digestive health, which is kind of the reasons why we have to have greens anyway. So you could be like Dinesh, you could be like Debbie, you could start your health journey in 2024 by calling 800-246-8751. Again, that's 246-8751, You'll get 35% off if you mention promo code AMERICA for the discount. That's going to be your first time order, preferred order, customer discount code of 35% off. They're almost giving it away right there. Try Balance of Nature. Again, we're going to do that phone number because I like it. It's 246-8751 or go to Balance of Nature. All spelled out, all those words, balanceofnature.com online and use promo code AMERICA. My name is Mark Lichtenfeld, best-selling author of Get Rich with Dividends and chief income strategist at the Oxford Club, one of the world's largest and most prominent financial firms 
where over 250,000 readers receive my insights each week. I believe we're entering the greatest oil bull market since the 1970s. That's why I'm so excited to share this special oil and gas investment with you today. I've discovered an unusual way to potentially bank massive income from the oil and gas surge 100% outside the stock market. Oil and gas royalties are a backdoor way to get paid over and over again, and you can get into a top royalty stream for just $25. This is your chance to get the income you need to truly enjoy life, simply because you made the decision to give the Oxford Income Letter a risk-free try today. But this opportunity won't last forever. To learn more about Mark Lichtenfeld's unusual approach to generating monthly income from the oil markets, please visit oilpayday.com. That's oilpayday.com, paid for by the Oxford Club. All right, folks, we are back with Steve Baker here. You may have just heard something that probably rocked you just a little bit, that the government actually instituted a lying special agent for the U.S. Capitol Police to cover up a narrative that needs to be preserved. This is not without cost. As I mentioned earlier, I think that investigative reporters are the most important weapon against an overreaching totalitarian police state. And that is what Steve has been fighting it, but not without cost to himself. That's the really big thing. People who are involved in an information war have to take the uh, potential of damage. Steve, will you talk about what has happened since you started getting involved in this investigation? Yeah, it was six months after January 6th that I was finally contacted by the FBI. It was another two or three months before they could actually secure permission from the attorney general's office to actually interview me because I had a history of writing and being a journalist and doing political commentary. So they had to get permission. There's actually a code in the code of federal regulations that says they have to get that permission. You know what I'm talking about. That's how you can't interview a member of the press without permission from the office of the uh, attorney general of the United States. So it took a while for that to be negotiated with my attorneys. That took place in October of 21. A month later, in November of 21, my attorney received an email from a assistant U.S. attorney out of Philadelphia telling him that I would be charged within the week. That was two years ago. Then they went silent. And we didn't hear from them for 20 months. So for 20 months, I'm waking up every morning at six o'clock in the morning, expecting the knock on the door, uh, you know, and the red dots through the window. I know that doesn't happen in real life. But, you know, that's how it looks like movies. That's what so, it like. Yep. <laughs> that's right. And so for 20 months, we didn't hear from them until in August of this year, we actually got a grand jury subpoena. My attorney was notified by the FBI come by the FBI office in Raleigh and pick up a grand jury subpoena for my videos from January 6th, which was, uh, which was uh, uh, a completely unnecessary act on their part on their part anyway, because I had already voluntarily offered all of my videos to them two years prior. Okay. But they go through the process of the grand jury subpoena subpoena. Then they go silent again for four more months. And then lo and behold, two weeks ago today, this very morning, I get a call from my attorney who says we got a problem i just heard from fbi agent uh special agent craig noyes who's been handling your case for the last two and a half years and they are going to ask you to come home to raleigh next week and to self-surrender for your actions on january 6th my actions on january 6th were wielding a camera and covering the event and that was the totality of my actions that day so we we don't know what the charges are going to be. They still will not tell us. Uh, initially, the uh, Noyes told my attorney that he didn't know, he claimed that he didn't know what the charges would be. I'm at a little bit dubious, considering the fact that he has to prepare the statement of facts that recommends what the charges will be to the Department of Justice. That's and then he said he wouldn't know until the 
uh, judge signed off on the warrant itself. And then my attorneys have been in contact with the AUSA in charge of my case, specifically asking them what the charges will be. And he refused to uh, acknowledge what they would be because his excuse was, if I tell you, Steve will then publish it immediately on Twitter. Which, of course, is the correct answer and what you're allowed to do. That's the it turns out that's what the First Amendment says. Um, I want to give people a sense of light. I've been going on. You're facing much more backlash. Matt Taibbi was our first guest of the week, and he talked about how, you know, he went and testified for the Congress. Then he has the IRS knocking on his door at the same time. We don't believe in coincidences when you work in this type of world, when you see these sort of things. Uh, we've talked to two whistleblowers. One lost a job. One lost a lot of faith in the federal government. That's a big deal. We talked to Tracy Beans. She's been deplatformed and censored. And then we've got you here who are you're facing active prosecution by an aggressive and activist government trying to preserve a narrative. And the good news is, is that it's not a one sided battle. Thank God. Can you talk about the progress that you've had, the support that you went from being a guy who's got a blog and an independent journal who's driving around and doing things on Substack and locals? <laughs> and now you have. Yeah. Legit press credentials, whether we call them legit or not, by a, like a real media organization with some real teeth. Can you talk about how that works? Yeah, yeah it, it was a, a long process, obviously. And because of the success that I had had in developing whistleblowers inside the Capitol Police, I was able to then get contacts within the Heritage Foundation, uh, you know, and then through the Heritage Foundation, uh, they were able to reach out to uh, a brand new editor in chief by the name of Matt Peterson at Blaze, Blaze Media. Uh, Blaze Media is looking, as you may or may not be aware, to expand, especially in the area of investigative uh, journalism. And so uh, Matt contacted me several months ago and said, hey, we've, we've heard about your work. I've been looking at your stuff, been watching your videos, your appearances on Tucker and this and that and the other day. And we're really interested in having you come on board. That brought me eventually very quickly to a position of what they call a contributor for the Blaze. And then after this um a renewed threat of prosecution was laid on the table two weeks ago. The blaze went immediately in the act, the act and, and then they made me a full-time offer to come on as a full-time investigative journalist for blaze media. Do you think that had any effect on the FBI's decision to not arrest you last week? I think, I think that they were really stunned what happened in the 36 hours following that phone call. Because immediately we went, we we put the wheels into gear. We had a press offensive that I was I did a dozen interviews over the next thirty six hours, including on the Glenn Beck show, uh, as well as my tweet that was seen by you know millions of people uh, as well. And I think that as a result of that, they did back off because within thirty six hours, my attorney received another call saying, "Okay, uh, we're going to postpone his self surrender until after the first of the year," which told me. That that's giving them time to reevaluate, recoordinate, to see if they're going to hard charge me even, you know, more aggressively or they're going to back off. We don't know. I mean, we just, we're, we're completely in limbo. And, and, and Kyle, this, you know, they talk about the, the processes, the punishment. I've been in limbo for two and a half years now. And I have, I have looked my accuser, Special Agent Craig Noyes, in the eyes and I said, this is wrong. You have put me through this for two years with no answers. And you, Craig Noyes, told me when you interviewed me the first time, you said, thank you for doing no violence that day against law enforcement officers. You know why I was there, and you know I was doing the job of a journalist. You could call this thing off, and you wanted to. 
hundred percent. Steve, tell people where they can continue to follow your story because it's obviously not over yet and uh, I'm not done covering it. Uh, I hope they will follow you. What's the best place to f- keep track of you? Yeah, obviously, uh, Blaze Media, uh, theblaze.com. Uh, uh, then, of course, my locals blog, you can just find it there at TPC4USA, TPC, the number four, USA.com, or my Twitter and Facebook accounts are also at TPC4USA. All pretty condensed and consolidated there. Thanks for your bravery, buddy. Thanks for uh, talking to us on this uh, windy morning out there in the outdoor space, not letting people know you are. And uh, God bless you in the new year and 2024. I hope it is going to be a new year for liberty. Um, we'll, we'll definitely see you together. Happy New Year to you, Kyle. Thank you. All right, brother. We'll talk soon. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Baker. The show is also brought to you by My Pillow and that lovely man, Mike Lindell. Is there anyone more enthusiastic about a good night's sleep than Mike Lindell? Is there? He'll yell right at you about it. And what are we selling today? We've got Giza Dream Sheets. It's a revolutionary cotton that is soft and strong and durable. It comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee, and a 10-year warranty. If you keep sheets for 10 years, you're doing better than me. Most of them never last that long. They're going to have stains. They're going to get run. They're going to get destroyed. If they say they'll last 10 years, you know they believe in the product. That is not the wrong way to go. Check out MyPillow.com slash Dinesh. You'll get all the same deals you'd get from any other big personality, but you'll get them, and you'll be supporting this show, the Dinesh D'Souza Show. Again, you're supporting Mike Lindell and the MyPillow family. They're super nice people. I talk to them on the phone. Everybody there seems really nice. They're lovely Christian people who just want to do the right thing. They believe in America, and they believe in working hard and making fantastic products, whether you're looking at the slippers, whether you're looking at the MyPillow 2.0. I assume there'll be a 3.0 at some point because the guy never sleeps. He's just trying to help you sleep. Check out MyPillow.com slash Tanesh. Enjoy the money-back guarantee. And right now, it's 50% off the Giza Dream Sheets. You can get a set for... Less than $30, 29, what is it? 29.98, promo code Dinesh, D-I-N-E-S-H, mypillow.com slash Dinesh, or use the promo code. And if you're one of those people that's got to pick up the phone and talk to a human being, you can do that too. Call 800-876-0227. Again, 800-876-0227 for MyPillow. Ladies and gentlemen, the guy has really put it on the line. He's not just standing on the street there. He's trying to enjoy what may be last moments of freedom before the FBI comes and locks him up. That should not be a consequence of telling the truth in America. But sadly, I think this week has hopefully shown you a comprehensive effort on behalf of our federal government, who is supposed to remain agnostic about free speech, getting fully involved again. Matt Taibbi on Tuesday telling us that the government was going and aggressively lobbying for outcomes and trying to use terms of service of private companies to slant the view of the American people. We heard the story of whistleblowers showing that the the federal government is actively involved in one of the most evil acts that you can be. They are complicit and they are ignoring their responsibility for child sex trafficking, child labor trafficking, and the crisis that we see at our border. The cost of exposing that is losing your job. That may not be the worst thing that can happen. You had Tracy Beans on yesterday, the editor-in-chief of UncoverDC.com, talking about Missouri versus Biden. The pushback showing us exactly how important it is that our local government be strong, rigid, and independent, and mostly accountable to us. 
the people in the local government are the closest and most likely that you are going to actually see at a grocery store. They're going to be the ones that you actually see eye to eye if they pull you over for a traffic stop. Your local law enforcement and your local representatives have much more likelihood of encountering you in a real way than our very far off and distant reaching bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. It's the reason why all of us who see a solution see it happening at the grassroots level and happening closer to you. But what Tracy told you was, is the federal government, the furthest reaching thing, has actually claimed that cognitive infrastructure, that's the gray matter between your ears, folks, that that is actually on the mandate of agencies that think that they can protect you from your own thoughts. And the only way they can do that is censoring what you hear and what you see, curating a narrative, if you will. And you just heard Steve Baker doing the exact opposite, destroying the narrative by taking the government's own cameras, stringing them together the way an investigative journalist is supposed to do, that blue-collar work, no journalism degree required, like we talked about on Tuesday, and just getting to the heart of the matter, the truth, and seeing with your own eyes. What are you going to believe? What the government tells you or what you can see on the cameras the government has been trying to hide for people for three years? I think the story is so compelling in and of itself. That's why we used almost the entire episode today to tell Steve Baker's story. I ask you to follow all of those people and you can follow me at Kyle Serafin on Twitter and on True Social. It's a good place. I promote all of the voices that I know are true that are going and doing the hard work and putting themselves on the line. Again, it's at Kyle Serafin on True Social and on Twitter. We're also on Instagram, even though I dislike it. And uh, you can also find me at uh, Kyle Serafin. It's rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin here on Rumble. You guys can find that live stream every 930 weekday. It's just a, a regular lobbying of truth and black eyes given out on a left and right basis to both the FBI and the wider federal government. I really appreciate Dinesh and Debbie with trusting me with their uh, their new hot rod here and driving around in the uh, Dinesh D'Souza show. Folks, if you've enjoyed this, I hope you follow all the people that you heard and uh, we look forward to seeing you after the new year. Please be safe, be smart, be healthy, and God bless all of you. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.